Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast and today we're going to look at everyone's favourite mould, Aspergillus. We see a number of fungal infections in the ICU and most commonly it'll be the yeasts, forms of candida. Yeasts are single-celled organisms. The moulds of which Aspergillus is a member are multicellular organisms. And to continue into this brief foray into Wikipedia-inspired irrelevance, the name Aspergillus comes from the liturgical implement known as the Aspergillum, more commonly known as the thing that your priest man shakes to sprinkle the holy water. And apparently it was named Aspergillus by the Italian priest who discovered it under his microscope, and he named it for the resemblance. Okay, on to actual medicine now. The biggest issue comes for us in the ICU in differentiating colonisation from active infection. So proper invasive pulmonary aspergillosis is characterised histologically by invasion across tissue planes, particularly through blood vessels. As you can imagine, getting a lung biopsy to prove such on ICU patients can be a tad challenging, so we're stuck with the usual conundrum of trying to work it out based on the probabilities and surrogate tests. The life in the fast lane entry on aspergillosis has four types described that we probably should be aware of. So number one, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, and this is generally an outpatient condition that is rarely the cause of why the patient is in the ICU. Number two, the aspergilloma, the dirty great fungus ball hanging out in one of the lobes of the lung causing all kinds of bother. And surprisingly, this can also actually be an outpatient problem. And number three, chronic necrotizing pneumonia, which is described as semi-invasive in the life in the past lane post. And fourthly, invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. This is a type we're more likely to see and really what we're more worried about. The Internet Book of Critical Care covers aspergillosis very well, and if this podcast does no more than refer you to the IBCC, uh, then my work here is done. Josh makes an excellent point of pointing out that there probably is a different clinical pattern of presentation in the neutropenic versus the non-neutropenic patient, and it's well worth a read. For any kind of fellowship examination, you should be expected to reproduce a somewhat cogent list of risk factors for an illness like this. And of note, however, we are all exposed to aspergillus, and exposure to aspergillus is a simple fact of being alive, but generally it doesn't cause us much of a trouble unless something else is going on. So a reasonable but by no means complete list of risk factors might include most famously stem cell and lung transplants, um, or anyone with prolonged neutropenia. So let's talk of neutropenia typically greater than 10 days. And remember, Remember that hematological malignancies are really the groups where you're expected to reach that level of prolonged neutropenia. So stem cells, lung transplants, certainly the big risks. Um, next up, we g- it can also occur in much less immune-suppressed people who are just really sick in the intensive care unit, um, or even in people with COPD who are getting recurrent doses of oral steroids, and they describe a, a dose of 20 milligrams per day of prednisolone as a risk. Cirrhotics, um, like all of these kind of conditions, cirrhotics are at risk of it. Um, patients post-severe influenza also seem to be a well-established risk, so they've had a viral pneumonitis, and this looks like a severe super-infection three to five days into the course of influenza. Most of the other solid organ transplants seem to be fairly low risk overall. COVID-19 is, as a risk factor, it's almost certainly a risk factor. However, many of the studies have assumed that growth in osputum implies invasive disease, which is probably a little bit of a stretch. That being said, if you find the whole airway is covered in white plaques in the bronch, um, then you've probably already established the diagnosis. So two common clinical scenarios where you might see aspergillus, invasive aspergillosis. Maybe, let's say, a hematological cancer patient in the ICU as part of a neutropenic sepsis process. They might be a week or two in, they've got profound neutropenia, they develop recurrent fevers and they've got a respiratory deterioration. And then between a, a subsequent kind of growth on sputum and some adjunctive tests, you establish the diagnosis of aspergillus. 
More recently, the more common context we've seen it is in the unfortunate chronically comorbid patient who gets a bad dose of the oil COVID and two weeks into their vent course, uh, they deteriorate and their bronch shows white plaques all the way down and they can really get into trouble and deteriorate quickly. In terms of testing, there are a number of potential useful modalities. When it comes to radiology, CT is your friend, certainly over x-ray. And as always, giving your radiologist a specific query might actually be helpful. Look for cavities or look for something called a monod sign, which is air around the fungus ball. Um, And the two other signs I've seen described are the halo sign and the finger and glove sign. And there are some good images and examples available on Radiopedia. Link to in the show notes. In terms of blood tests, we typically reach for the beta-D-glucan or galactamanin. Both are cell wall components of fungi, but the galactamanin is probably more specific for aspergillus. Both have sensitivities quoted around 75%, so they are by no means perfect. And there are a variety of assays and types available, and you can do it in blood, you can do it in bowel fluid, um, and typically I would just defer to a microbiologist rather than attempting to understand them all. There were historical issues of false positives with beta-lactams like peptazobactam, but apparently these are historical issues and they're not relevant to the contemporary assays. Um, we do often do bronchoscopy in order to get a decent sample um, for growth here, and we would typically do a galactamanin on the bowel sample, and we would tend to rely, lean a lot heavier on that than we would on the serum test. Uh, in my reading, I also saw reports of eosinophilia and elevated serum IgE is also being associated with aspergillus, um, but I have not seen this um, really in real life. Ultimately, making the diagnosis in ICU is very difficult because there's lots of confounders, mainly being lots of colonization, making it difficult to distinguish from invasive disease. Open lung biopsy as a gold standard comes with a sensitivity of 60%, so it's just been that really as an idea um, in order to get the diagnosis. In general, we look for it, and if the patient fulfills the kind of sick as shit category, which they almost always do, then we go ahead and treat when it comes to treatment, there are a few recommendations you can choose from, and in general, voriconazole is a drug that leads the way, and there have been, certainly locally, some recent shortages of the intravenous form, so it's nice to know that the PO version actually works pretty well if the gut is working. It does need some monitoring of levels, um, and occasionally there will be use of dual antifungal cover, but as always, I'd be taking advice from an expert in that type of a situation. If there is a huge aspergilloma, a big fungus ball, it's important to note that surgical resection is actually something that is done, but as you might suspect, this applies to um, probably a more stable population than we're looking after in the ICU. For references here, as I highly recommended the Internet Book of Critical Care post on this, the ATS 2019 guidance, um, there's a nice little guidance document um, about how we would diagnose, um, particularly on diagnosis of aspergillus in the ICU. Life in the Fastly and Deranged Physiology both cover this, and I've linked to two other patients particularly related to COVID-19, one by Fekar as the lead author and the other one by Verweige, one in intensive care and one in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine. And they provide some useful um, perspectives on the difficulties of making a diagnosis of invasive aspergillosis. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 